opposite way around. <laughs> okay, well, say so we have 30 minutes to kind of reflect a little bit on what you've done so far. I know this is all very short and very quick, uh, but just a little bit of time to reflect and perhaps we'll ask a few questions about what's going on here. You better start asking, otherwise we start on you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) One question. Um, You know, meditation is hard, and it really is a practice, and sometimes I might rather just watch a movie, you know, or do entertainment, like we were talking about. Um, I think I'm getting benefits from meditation. I've been doing it for a few years. But I wanted to know whether you, as you've observed people and in your own lives, what concrete benefit have you gotten from your practice or or other people's practices that you've observed? Okay, well, I don't know if everybody heard that, which I very much doubt is right at the back. This is a question about the benefits of meditation after having done it for a while. What kind of benefits we're being asked have we perhaps observed in our own lives, practices, but certainly perhaps of our students, people who've come along and sat meditation classes with us. What kind of benefits have we seen um, in that whole process of engaging in in this path of meditation? Do you want to first step? Give him the easy questions. <laughs> I guess what got me into, uh, into this was basically the uh, an experience that there were large chunks of my own life I didn't understand how I felt the way I felt. And meditation was a definite tool to make me more clear what I actually felt, you know, before we speak of letting go or deep states of stillness or, you know, trenchant insights. I just didn't know what was going on. I knew so many things were going on all at the same time, and I couldn't actually dissect that. And just kind of sitting still and learning to actually sample what was going on was already a tremendous relief. Um, usually people start to meditate because they're some, uh, in some place unhappy or discontent or they experience pain or loss. Some of that is emotional, some of that is spiritual, some of that is existential. Yeah? Um, there are generally people don't begin to meditate because of sheer happiness. Uh, no, no insult uh, intended. Yeah. So, usually there's something that, that we sense that we could understand more. You know, we had actually the tools and the resources to understand more, but somehow I need to learn how to use these tools. Yeah. So that's, I think, for, for, for many of us, the way in. If you do that for a while, you become more familiar with the territory. It doesn't necessarily 
obviously we can't make that public on our brochures. It doesn't necessarily hurt less, you know, but you know more what's going on. Also, you have you, you make betterly, better informed choices on the basis of if you understand more what you need and what actually takes place and what makes you suffer and where you feel loss and disappointment, you have actually a better possibility to make choices in your life that are more healthy. You know, we're not speaking of awakening, we're not speaking of great uh, exalted states, we're just speaking of having a better understanding of what is salubrious and what is insalubrious in my life. If you persist in this, then you will become more susceptible to the movements of your mind. You will, you will find strengths and resources. You will find skills that help you to become quiet even under less than optimal circumstances. Your capacity to handle things grows. So in other words, you need, you need less optimal circumstances and you still, you somehow have more time or you have less reactivity or you have just more peace. Your, your stress tolerance increases. Um, if you stay at this, and, you know, continuity is, uh, is the big thing about it. Heroic efforts are there, they're kind of, yeah, they're what they are, heroic, you know, but what really helps is, is learning to establish continuity in mindfulness. That's the thing that really is transformative. So if you learn to hone your skills of staying with things beyond just the pleasant things, you know, John kind of spoke about this this morning, we're habitually going for the pleasant bit and trying to uh, move away from the unpleasant bit. That means we can only basically attend to things that are nice. And by our, by our attempt to maximize the things that are nice, we keep having to deflect the things that are not nice. So by concentrating on the nice things, these not nice things have a tendency to repeat themselves and creep back in. So more and more of our lives is kind of a, it's a deal, you know, getting the nice bit and pushing this bit away. And this is... Um, it's psychologically not just unhealthy, also it just doesn't, it simply doesn't work, yeah? because we don't have that amount of control. And becoming more capable of staying with experience and having insight in your needs, your patterning, your tendencies, your reactivity, and also where stillness comes from, you know, where strength comes from, where insight comes from, this is really a boon. You know, in all aspects of your life. This is going to change your relationship. It's going to change your relationship to yourself. It's going to change your capacity to appreciate, to feel embedded in a world rather than isolated in it. Um, even if you don't go for this whole Buddhist part of it, you will s still feel tremendously more connected with your life and your own, you know, the patterns that are governing this life. I see that in people. Um, there are fascinating little side effects. I, I, I do long-term retreats sometimes in Switzerland with people. and uh, One of the <laughs> startling things is uh, people who come and sit for a month, how less wrinkled they look after. <laughs> I think we haven't played enough on the anti-aging effect. Of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
I haven't got too much to add to that because I think that's what the Kinchino said. You know, I kind of pretty well agree with all the way along. Um, this capacity to stay without reactivity, I think, is one of the big boons of this. It's not that the world is going to change. It's that you're going to change in your basic patterns of behavior in regard to that world. As we know, just in ordinary life, we become so reactive. I mean, I think when I first discovered meditation and you know, this path, when I was 17, I landed in India when I was 17 and kind of came across this, and I saw all these Tibetans walking around and lost everything, you know, kind of lost everything. They'd lost their home, they'd lost their possessions. In some cases, they'd lost their family. Uh, yet they were joking and smiling and laughing, and partly I discovered later that was partly in Tibetan culture, the way they are, but also it's, it's the residual effect of over a thousand years of Buddhism uh, mm. in Tibetan culture as well. And I kind of went, I want some of that. You know, I was kind of 17, dissatisfied, uh, coming from a fairly affluent culture, um, certainly had a lot more than anybody I encountered, and yet I could be so miserable. Yeah, I don't know if any of this strikes a chord with anybody else, but we can be so miserable despite our affluence. You know, one of the things that we see in the Western world is the patterns of, and the um, incidence of depression arising in our societies, and it's actually on the increase in affluent societies. Um, it just shows you that the, the thing, we cannot buy ourselves happiness, you know, no matter how affluent we are. And luckily for me, I mean, I didn't do the same as the Kinchner, but I mean, luckily for me, I kind of realized that at a fairly early age, that I'm not going to buy my way out of this situation. You know, no matter how, you know, how much money I earn in a, in a profession or a job or anything like that, there is something here I've got to deal with myself. And it's, if you like, my own destructive patterns that I bring to experience. You know, what, what do I bring that kind of inflicts a wound on myself? rather than having it directly inflicted by somebody else. And it's always easy to blame others, isn't it? It's always your fault, <laughs> rather than us looking inside. And what I see on the path of meditation, both within people who've been practicing for a long time and myself, is the ability to reflect on that, to reflect on um, how much we are implicated in the production of our own misery. You know, it's been, it might be great, it might be small, but I think, as Akinchino says, most people come to meditation, certainly in the Western world, in the Western world, through an understanding of something that's not quite right in their lives. You know, it might be very big, it might even be tragedy, but often it's just really, things are not quite right, things are not falling in place as they should do in the life, relationships are not working, um, my, my relationship with the world in general is fairly fractious, and I think it's that recognition that brings us. And what we get, I think, from this meditative path is this ability to hold what happens to us in a completely different way. You know, as I was saying this morning, and Kinchino picked up, you know, you know, this business of just having no freedom from you know, the push and pull of the pleasant, there we are, we're going after it, the unpleasant, there we are, trying to reject it, get away from it as quickly as possible. It's actually just like being a pinball in a pinball machine just being flipped around. You know, there is no stability in that whatsoever. And if there's no stability, there can't be any real contentment or happiness in our lives. And so when we start talking about any kind of happiness, and I see this, um, happiness is not something we get externally. Happiness is something which is internally generated, I think, as I was saying last night. And that's what we discover for ourselves. We discover it, 
internal wellsprings of joyfulness, um, which actually often we don't know are there. And a lot of this is dependent on our ability to attend, to be present, to be here. You know, if you think about our modes of being, a lot of the time our modes of being are simply planning or raking over the past. Um, It's almost, is there anybody home (laughs) at uh, certain times? Because we're just strung out between these two dimensions. And so what I think we increase is our capacity to be able to stay present and to stay present actually with what is occurring. I mean, you've heard these refrains being uttered during the meditation so far, and a lot of them are about staying present with what is occurring. And this is a training. This is not the end. I mean, sitting on a cushion doing this stuff is not the end. And I think the question you're asking is really about what are the benefits in real life? Well, the real benefits are that you can attend, you can be with, you can perhaps not be reactive to that unpleasant thing that's happening in your life and not get angry or... Um, you know, start bewailing that it's happening to you. You know, it's actually, to a certain extent, it's to do with a, an open acceptance. And now to that open acceptance, it's not just a kind of stoicism. It's actually being able to deal with more effectively. You know. Yes, please. I think this is not difficult to do with this type of practice. You do not need to subscribe or become a card-carrying Buddhist member to make benefit of, of these exercises. As you probably realize, we're not really hiding where this is coming from. At the same time, you know, you can practice this and be a good Jew. I have no doubts. I teach in Israel for many years and I have Orthodox Jews on my courses there. So you probably look around yourself and particularly the uh, movement here in America, it will not have escaped your your notion that you're not alone in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any I would think that any religious practice benefits from a deeper capacity to attend, to stay present, to uh, hold focal attention. Whether that is prayer or whether that is another act of devotion, uh, whether that is charity, whether that is relational or parishioner work, you know, you're likely to benefit if you are more present and more mindful in doing so. 
Um, obviously, this is the Buddhist take on things. What the Jewish take on things is you will have to figure out <laughs> the Jewish side of your life. Yeah. There's one thing I want to add to that, <clears throat> which is in many ways, um, in some ways I feel a bit of a fraud sitting up here talking about Buddhist ways of doing things. And I mean that because... In a way, what we're, not, what we're talking about is not Buddhist. It's human. If there is a capacity to attend, if there's a capacity to understand, if there's a capacity to practice in these ways to bring mindfulness into ordinary life, this is a human capacity. Um, I think it's fairly well and fairly obvious that the Buddha never started out as a Buddhist. <laughs> he started out as somebody reflecting on human life and human psychology and the wellsprings of our behaviours, um, both good and bad, in this life. Um, I don't think he was ever attempting to found what we might call a religion now. And so for me, and I can only speak very personally here, for me, all of these practices and all of the understandings that come out of it are, you know, they're not Buddhist, they're actually human. It's just that this particular tradition has emphasised these things because it's, you know, it's looked at the nature of the mind and its processes for something approaching two and a half thousand years. It's quite a long time. Um, but ultimately what we're dealing with is human beings. So I think these are transferable skills. It doesn't matter what your faith, what your creed is really. These are transferable skills. They never go amiss wherever you bring them into. Whether you bring them into a Jewish situation or a Christian situation. I know many Christians, for example, in the UK who are now, for example, introducing mindfulness into, into their practices because actually it's something that's absent. There's a kind of lacuna in, in much of Christian practice, certainly in the UK, I don't know about here. Um, I just think it's something that's very, very transferable. It doesn't, it doesn't really cut across dogmas in that way. Um, so I don't think there is anything ultimately that we could label here Buddhist in a big sense of this is you know, kind of the prerogative of the Buddhists. This is human, uh, and that's how I'd like to see it. You know, it can be benefit human beings no matter what, creed or no creed. Religion or no religion, you know, it really doesn't matter. I see many people getting benefits out of this, for example, in the work that I do in Oxford. In that work, we're dealing with people who would never dream of even doing what you're doing, coming to a meditation centre. Uh, there are people with often things like clinical depression um, coming and wanting something that can help them um, with their problems. And as a very human capacity, they can, can develop the side of their mind which actually helps and, and is actually sometimes more effective than drug therapy uh, for this. So it's something I think you can bring in no matter what. Um, so I've, I've been practicing for about a year, and uh, when I first started out, uh, the concept of following the breath and kind of watching your thoughts was very new and interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and so it was very easy for me to... to um, kind of focus my attention on those things. And uh, as, I, as I've done that over the course of the year, um, it has become less new and less interesting. And uh, I find that I'm losing that clarity of attention. Um, and it, it's getting harder and harder to find. So I was wondering if you had any suggestions for how to um, get some of that clarity back without having newness and interestingness back. Yeah, I have some ideas. You, you may identify more precisely 
what you're actually attending to, you know. Usually we attend to things that are, um, that are shortcuts. If you look at the sensory nature of our experience, it is processual, yeah, it's utterly dynamic. And then we kind of, we, lun uh, we launch onto certain aspects of it, you know, the most easily recognizable aspect. And once we have recognized that most easily recognizable aspect, we can say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, I know this, know this, know this, yeah. So, and it is, for, for a deepening of an experience of continuity in your experience, you need to go beyond that handle, below it, to be honest, yeah? You need to go beyond, be, below the label you have given that experience, so that you can, uh, attend to that experience on a more um, kind of intimate level. Now, you see, much of familiarity uh, doesn't just breed contempt, it also breeds habit. Yeah? And whenever we have habit, we have a dropping of attention, we have a dropping of presence. So as soon as you say, I know something, first thing that goes away is your, the refinement and the presence of your attention. So you need to learn what makes your mind curious, curious, what makes your mind alive. You need to trace that energy. And one way of tracing that energy is actually consciously looking past the labels your attention settles on. Yeah. Um, in the breath, this may have to do with the fact that you're widening the span of where you would, what you attend to. You may be identifying qualities of breath you have not thought of. When so far you've only noticed touch, you might now look at the texture, or you might look at the resistance of your body against that breathing, or you, might, uh, you may um, particularly pay attention to the smoothness or to the jaggedness of, a, say, a breathing movement. Yeah? So you, you become a good scientist and you investigate more into the minutiae of something. So you try to, you, you know this, you know how, you know, how the surface feels and looks, you recognize when it's there, when it's absent, but then you go a little closer or you kind of, you take a, a sample of it and you kind of go really close to there. You know, can I stay with it longer, you know? Instead of just saying, yeah, breath, 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 you say, okay, this is the beginning of an in-breath, this is the middle of an in-breath, this is the end of an in-breath. Yeah. And for that, you know, cognitively, this is not interesting. The mind says, ah, oh, this is boring, yeah? Uh, give me movies, give me stories, <laughs> give me a narrative, give me drama, yeah? My, if you have my sort of mind, my mind loves drama, yeah? So... If you listen just to the cognitive task, then this is boring. But if you actually go to the felt experience of this, this is not boring. You, know, you may find in your relationship to your breath profound insights into the nature of you know, reality. You find impermanence. You find the degree of expectation and non-satisfaction you get. You, you may find that things are more impersonal than you initially thought they were. <laughs> That you, and this uh, can be found by your curiosity. So find out what makes you curious, and this curiosity will bring that aliveness back. That will be the shorthand answer. Yeah. John, maybe you have. I don't have too much to add to this. Unfortunately, letting him answer the question first, he gets all the good lines. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's more like strategies of, again, awakening interest. And I think the ones that Kinchin have already mentioned, I'll just reiterate again, is actually beginning to look for other qualities other than this is just the breath. So it's like um, refreshing. What we're doing is refreshing ourselves by going back to, you know, looking just, I think what Kinchin is saying, by going up close, is actually just looking that little bit deeper. What we've got actually in the initial stages is a honeymoon period of surface, mm. where we're just looking at the surface. And that honeymoon period can last, you know, a year, as you've said, in your particular case. It can last for a short period or it can even last longer than that. But at some point, the mind is going to go boring. I've had it, I've had it with this. I really know that. So really, it's switching the attention then to something a little bit deeper, texture. How does this breath feel in its texture? Is it smooth? Is it rough? What's the in-breath like? Is that smooth or is it rough? What's the out-breath like? Is that smooth or is it rough? Now, these are not absolutely fascinating questions. <laughs> you know, this is not going to bring the world to, to a staggering stop. But what it's going to do is actually sharpen the mind just a little bit. It's like going, just, just adding a little bit more focus into it. You know, beginning to focus down just a little bit more. Then it's kind of what length of this breath? What's the difference between the out-breath and the in-breath? Is that short or is it long? You know, so we begin to look at textures and qualities and you know, how is this in-breath as opposed to that in-breath? How is this out-breath as opposed to that out-breath? How does it feel in the body? Let's take another completely different look. Hmm. How does this breath feel on a bodily felt sense of experience? After all, you know, this is actually traditionally supposed to be one of the body contemplations the feeling of the breath within the body. Can I f experience, and I think we've tried to indicate this a bit in the instructions so far, can I experience that whole body sense of breathing? And what does that feel like? What sensations are arising? Actually, there's more than enough to focus in on to actually keep this, this thing alive uh, and much more, um, yeah, not much more interesting in a way. So we just take it down that little bit deeper. And when that gets familiar, we take it down a little deeper still. And in a way, there's a never-ending set of inquiries that we can engage in to, to keep these things alive. Um, and part of that is you'll learn if you come on more, on more, um, more retreats um, because you'll get sort of different um, ways of focusing on these particular phenomena. Yeah. Yes, please. Temperaments differ. You know, in one way, um, what the mind likes to do is to think. We all, we all love thinking. You may not consider yourself a great intellectual, but you don't need to be a great intellectual to love thinking. If you look at the habits of your mind, you will see that the mind will think when it's happy, it will think when it's sad, it will think when it enjoys something, it will think when it's grumpy about something. You know, our primary response to experience is usually some form of discursive activity. So, on one level, this is what 
preoccupies our attention. Much of our attention is siphoned off into discursive um, processes. Um, and by suggesting we go to something like felt processes uh, and focus our attention thereon, the thinking seems to be an obstacle. But we can also kind of cut back on the thinking, give a little bit of thinking, say, as in your meta exercises, and suggest that the mind stays with this. Yeah. So you meet the mind's habit to think a little bit, but in an enough defined way that the associative and kind of uh, proliferating tendency of mind doesn't set in. Yeah. Bottom line is, if it works, if it helps you to, to find stillness, this is the way in. You know. This will also change. If you do that for a while, you may find suddenly the breath gets interesting. Important is to find a way in. Yeah. So, congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, last one. Uh, well, speaking of metta, I hear a lot of teachers say that metta is probably the most effective uh, meditation technique for developing compassion and even awakening. I hear a lot of teachers say that. And if that's the case, in the interest of time, shouldn't we, we be practicing metta? <laughs> <laughs> no time to lose. You've left him speechless. <laughs> well, I, you know, metta is not a technique. Now, let's, let's be clear about this. Metta means friendliness or loving kindness and is a uh, teaching uh, on, on, on many levels. One level is practicing the qualities of friendliness and loving kindness, which are fundamental qualities of empathy and they form part of a bigger teaching on Buddhist response to the world. Um, while this is a very effective approach to meditation, it is also psychologically very stimulating. Yeah? So when you try to practice metta, you will in inevitably encounter the things which are difficult to develop friendliness towards and which are difficult to be loving uh, and kindly towards. So, um, for some people, depending a little bit on your background and your uh, relational world, uh, and you know the way you have been growing up, this may be an easier way in. But for many people, this is not an easier way in. Yeah? Simply because it takes you right to the place where you're not loving, or where you've been <coughs> deprived of this, or yeah. Where, where you're not going to be kind to. So, also, metta is part of something we sometimes teach, but we don't explicitly teach. You know, if you have listened to our language this morning, you will have heard friendliness, kindliness, gentleness. You, know, you will have heard a lot of this. Uh, we teach that as an attitude. We don't necessarily teach that as an explicit method. You know? We may do that, as is the case sometimes on a meta retreat. You know, the toolbox has many tools. And as you know, with tools, you know, if you want to drive in a screw, then a screwdriver is hard to beat. If you want to hit in a nail, a screwdriver is not such a great tool. So there are different 
particular approaches and they all are meant to help you develop a completeness of mind. Yeah. I wouldn't want to exchange mindfulness of breathing with metta. They're not meant to be played against each other. Uh, I would like to suggest that if you do your mindfulness practice with an attitude of metta, this is much more effective. And if you do your metta practice with the capacity of attending mindfully to your breath, <laughs> you'll have great effect in this. Yeah? So these are not competing methods. These are different facets of something that is bigger than a method. Yeah? I hope I make sense. Yeah. These are not separate things. They're complementary. And in fact, I wouldn't even say they're two separate things. I actually think they're one thing. Um, in many senses, the, the meta that we're talking about, and let's get this clear for those people who are not familiar with this word. We keep bandying this word around, and there might be a lot of you out there who are not familiar with this word. This meta um, that we speak about, actually, in Buddhist terms, means generally, it's a Pali term. It generally means friendliness, kindness, sometimes in the old translations translated as loving-kindness, but it certainly means a friendlier approach to things. When we start talking about metta, we are also talking about a form of mindfulness. Yeah, it's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being understanding the world, um, which is through friendliness. Um, the Buddha is very explicit about this. As he said, this is one of the greatest ways of being here in this world, is with friendliness. Certainly, um, if one takes some of the old texts, it might be seen, um, and I personally believe it is, uh, a path to liberation, mm. uh, a path to freedom itself. But it's not really, in, I think as Kinshina is indicating, it's not really in opposition to mindfulness, as understood as mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness, breathing, mindfulness of breathing actually has what I think he's referring to, which is an implicit metta. Yeah, and if we don't actually have that implicit sense of metta, it becomes very cold. It becomes very sterile. It becomes a path without a heart. Yeah. Um, in many ways, the metta is this attitude of mind that we bring to whatever is. Whether it is, for example, the explicit, what I call the formal metta practice, which we've already had mentioned, or whether it's this much, much more implicit sense of metta, which is this attitude of mind that we bring to our beginning to view our processes yeah, and to be beginning to view the processes of the world as well. So they're not two really, two, really two separate things. You know, I, I actually think that metta is mindfulness and mindfulness is metta. Not, uh, we're not talking about competing techniques here. Uh, some of it is temperamental. Uh, I really do believe it's temperamental. Some people work very, very effectively with the meta phrases, um, used in two different ways. You can use them both as concentration practices, i.e. developing focus, or you can use them as a way of developing insight. Insight is a lot more difficult because you're going to come up against hard things. The insight that you often come up with, for example, in the development of meta, is actually how full we are of ill will. Yeah. Instead of friendliness, we come across our ill will. Yeah. And so this becomes, in a sense, something we aspire to rather than automatically discover. So there's a lot of temperamental things in this, but I think even when we're beginning to develop just through mindfulness of breathing, this attitude of mind, when we bring it to the forefront, actually begins to soften our relationships with things. And this is what we're really talking about, a softening, a friendlier way of approaching what is ever happening to us. And again, I think, as Kinshino mentioned, you will... If, you, if you're attentive, 
you will hear it in a lot of the key words that we've both used in the introductions to the, the meditations that we've been doing so far. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we've run out of time. We have. Thank you for your questions and thank you for your attention. Good right now is walking. I would like to stay behind here for a moment and for those of you, particularly those of you, you're absolutely new on the meadow here, uh, I would like to say a couple of things about posture and demonstrate the use of cushions and things like that. Um, if you're interested in this, please stay behind. Uh, if you have already familiarity and you don't need this, uh, please go and practice walking meditation. We'll all meet back in here at 3.45, yeah, quarter to four. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.